Well, we are in the last week of our money series, so you can all breathe a sigh of relief. This has not been the most comfortable series, but it has been a necessary series, hasn't it? What Jesus says about money is quite profound, and he speaks about money more than any other subject in the scriptures, next to the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus has to say about money has huge implications for our lives. We've seen this. And this week, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. We, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool, and then he uses that um, encounter with the man to talk to his disciples, to talk about the implications of this parable. And Jesus says to them, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where we place the things that matter to us, our money, our wealth, our security, our retirement, our time, where we place those things affects our hearts. Our hearts, in a way, are chained to our treasures. Where we put our treasures, our hearts follow. We know this. When Facebook became public stock, I decided, you know what? I'm going to buy some Facebook stock. And it was the first time I had ever bought stock in my life, and I figured this is the mature thing to do, invest in social media. And I had a new daily routine from that point onward. Every morning, I'd pick up my phone, and I would Google Facebook stock. And depending on whether the number was higher or lower than the day before, depended on how the next 30 minutes of my day went and how much caffeine I consumed, the, the, the Facebook stock had a way into my heart like no other thing. It's just like Jesus says, where you put your treasure, there your heart will be also. I never cared about stock before, but all of a sudden I was talking about, you know, the Dow Jones and how it was performing and, and Facebook. You know, this is the only things I understood. But the, the stock market got to my heart because I put my treasure in it. So we're going to look at this teaching of Jesus, where you put your treasure, there your heart will be also. You find that in Luke chapter 12, 22 through 34. First, we're going to look at what happens to our lives, what happens to our hearts when we put our treasure in the world, when our treasure is all about ourselves, about our stuff, about our security. And then we're going to look at what happens to our lives when we put our treasure in the kingdom of God, what happens to our hearts, what happens to our stuff. Only two points today. You guys are getting off lucky. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. Now again, Jesus, he's just warned people about the danger of coveting. He's warned people about the foolishness of making life all about themselves. And he's, he's warned them about how when we do this, uh, we are at odds with the kingdom of God. And now he turns to his disciples to teach them. Verses 22 through 34. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything I've just taught you, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Now, before we really get into the sermon, let me just say something quickly. When Jesus says, do not be anxious, he's not talking about anxiety disorders. If you have a diagnosed anxiety disorder, and you're receiving counseling, or you're even taking medication, please know that Jesus is not... Um, condemning your struggle, and he's not unsympathetic to your needs. And, and if you find that you have anxiety in such a way, or even depression in such a way, that it is affecting how you function, it's making it hard to get out of bed. Please know, St. Peter's, we want to be a place that is safe for you to share that struggle. You can talk to me, you can talk to anyone on our staff, you can talk to people in your small group, but we want to be a place where people are honest about those sort of struggles. And so when Jesus says, do not be anxious, it is not talking about the sort of anxiety you're facing because of um, a disorder that you have. But I do believe that this passage can still be helpful to you. So when Jesus says, do not be anxious, 
He is speaking about the general anxiety and worry that every single person who lives on the planet Earth faces every single day. We worry about our stuff, our things, in our own little ways. Uh, worry encircles our thoughts. It seeps out of us in thousands of ways. We can worry about big things. We can worry about small things. We can worry about what we're going to eat. When will I have time to cook dinner? Is this paleo or low carb? Should I go vegan? No. Uh, we worry about uh, what we wear. Will this look good on me? Will people notice me? Are sequins still in fashion? We can worry about school. Will I get a passing grade or not? Will I get into the program that I really want to get into? What will I do with my biotechno poli science degree? We can worry about our work. My boss, is he happy with my performance? Did I do something wrong? What was that comment all about? Oh, am I going to lose my job? I'm so late on this deadline. What am I going to do? We can worry about our money. Will I have enough money to pay the bills, to cover rent, to even put groceries in my fridge? Am I saving enough for the future? How am I ever going to get out of debt? Should I even be giving? We can worry about our looks. Is my hair parted right? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl and I would call her. You know, you can worry about your, your height. Um, you can worry about everyone noticing your raccoon eyes. You know, just the way the light falls, your eyes are so deep set that no one can see you have eyeballs. You can worry about this stuff. And it blurs into the realms of our relationships. Does he like me? Does she like me? Is my relationship okay? Am I going to be lonely? Can our marriage get through this? And of course, we can worry about our relationship with God. Does God even like me? Does God even care? Does God even see me? Some of you right now, you're worried because you realize you are worrying way too much. And like some of you are now worried because you realize you don't worry enough. And, and that's just our reality. We worry. Some of us, we know what it's like to lie in bed at night, wide awake, worried about the day that's past and worry about the day that lies ahead. For others, worry affects you in different ways. It might be the ulcer, the stomachache, or, or ongoing fatigue, or the way that you treat others is always with frustration because you're so worried about everything. Worry, it seems harmless, but it affects our bodies, it affects our relationships, and on and on. And Jesus says, do not be anxious. Don't worry. But the question is, how do we stop worrying? In the weighty shadows of our worry, how do we stop? How do we see the light? You know, Jesus, he's not advocating uh, some of the more popular views on uh, beating worry. Jesus, he's not singing, don't worry, be happy. Uh, he's not belting out akuna matata with timon and simba. Uh, it means no worries in case you didn't know for, for the rest of your days. You might say it's a problem-free philosophy, but often... Um, we try to stop worrying by looking worry in the face and we say, don't worry, chill out, Maud. Be happy. Don't sweat the small stuff. But if we're honest, we know that trying to stop worrying by telling ourselves to stop worrying only creates more worry. It's like trying to get rid of ripples in water by smacking the water. You only create tides. Worry in this way is a bit of a beast. So when Jesus tells us, do not be anxious, don't worry, he knows that it's, it's not so easy for us to put into practice. He knows that something more is required than us simply telling ourselves not to worry, to not sweat the small stuff. 
Jesus knows that our worries and our anxieties are a result of how we see our place within the world, how we invest our lives into our stuff and our treasures. And he knows in turn that our worries are the result of how we see the world without God. And to help us get to this place of recognizing this within ourselves, he says, consider these things. Verses 24 through 28. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They've neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do something as small as this, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Ravens, they don't sow or reap. Lilies, they don't toil or spin. And God provides food and clothes them. And unlike the, the ravens and the lilies, we're anxious. We, we toil and reap. We, we sow and we spin. We store up things just in case. We get really worried about the things we need in life. And yet, in all of our worrying, we know we can't add a single hour to our day. Let alone an hour, we can't add a minute, a second to extend our lives. And so Jesus asks in verse 26, if you can't do something as small as that, why are you anxious about the rest? He wants us to acknowledge something in our hearts by asking that question. When we worry about our lives, be it about what we'll eat or drink or what we'll wear or how we'll secure our future, there's something going on in our hearts. What is the issue? We worry because we get so focused on what we want and what we need, but we don't really trust God to see what we want or what we need. We don't trust that God will provide for our needs. He can talk about ravens and lilies all day long, but it just seems um, a little like too much of a fluffy feeling to us at times, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like God actually sees us. For some of you, you don't even pray about the small stuff in your lives because you think that God has got bigger stuff on his plate. So you don't pray about the exam or you don't pray for rent to be provided. You don't pray for your house to sell, whatever it is, because you think in the big picture, how could God possibly care about your little worries? For some of you, you don't even believe that God is involved in the world. You know, he, he created the world. You believe that. He set the world into motion. Now he stands back and it's all on our shoulders. It's up to us to provide for ourselves. He made it. Now we're responsible. For some of you here, you don't even believe in God. And glad you're here. You're welcome here. And uh, for you, like, there's no trusting in a, a mythical deity to provide for your needs. You're going to provide for yourself. It's how life is. And the truth is, wherever you land in this spectrum, the moment that we believe that God doesn't care about us and the small stuff or even the big stuff, we all become functional atheists. The moment we live as if God doesn't care, as if God isn't involved in our own lives, we live as if there is no God at all. And as a result of living for ourselves and trying to hold on to our stuff, trying to control our future by thinking it is all on our shoulders. We worry. And at the heart of our worry is trying to control life without God. 
And, and it's hard because there's always a degree of uncertainty in our lives, isn't it? Life is always shifting. And we're always trying to compensate. And when we forget that God is present or involved, we, we fall into strategizing or coming up with plans or uh, fretting and stressing and overthinking every single detail. We're always trying to get life under control. And yet the more we begin to feel like we've got life under control, we now feel like, oh, I've got to get that under my thumb as well. I've got to get that under control now as well. And it's this endless cycle. And we can even worry about the good things in our life. I was really frustrated trying to illustrate this point. And all week I was fretting about it. And last night, Julia was like, let's sit down and pray. And she's praying. And she's like, you know, Lord, help Alistair think of a time he's been frustrated. I'm like, I'm frustrated right now. Help him think of a time he's been worried. I'm worried right now. It's almost midnight, you know. And I realized every single week, every single week that I prepare a sermon, I worry in some capacity. If I'm worrying in a healthy way, I'm thinking, am I faithfully representing the scriptures? Which is, hopefully I'm there more often than not. But sometimes I'm worried about, will this joke land? It's just the wrong worry. Uh, sometimes I'm worried about, how am I going to illustrate this point? Am I going to keep people's attention? I, I start worrying about you guys in the process. And I start worrying about myself because how, how I might be appearing. And I forget that my sermon is nothing unless the Holy Spirit shows up and speaks through me. My sermon preparation is nothing unless God shows up. But I can start preparing in such a way that I think it is all on my shoulders. I can forget to even pray sometimes. By the time I'm about 10 hours into my sermon, I've forgotten God has existed sometimes. This is, this is what worry does to us. We all know this. We're not above it. Even in the good things we pursue, we still live sometimes as if there is no God. Jesus knows that this is how our hearts function, which is why he laments in verse 28, oh, you of little faith, and goes on to say, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things. Jesus wants us to recognize that when we worry, when we stress out, we're living exactly as everyone else does on the planet. Everyone who lives as if there is no God anyways. And as a result, we will try to control our lives for the best possible outcome, and it will give birth to worry after worry. In verse 29, when Jesus says, nor be worried, uh, the word in the Greek actually means hovering between hope and fear. How beautifully does that describe worry? Worry is often something, we, we hope for something in the future and we worry that it will never happen. Worrying is the space between hope and fear. And this is what happens to our lives when we invest our treasure in the world. This is what happens to our lives when we make our lives all about ourselves and our stuff. This is what happens to our lives when we think that we have to control every single outcome. We worry. And before Jesus shows us the way out of worry, he wants us to address this issue in our hearts, this issue that we struggle to trust God. Which is why he says in verse 30, the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Jesus says that God is not some distant and uninvolved God who, who is unattentive to our needs. He says he's actually, he doesn't just want to call him God. He says, your father. Your father knows what you need. You might need to hear that again. God knows you. He knows your name. 
knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows how you're stressed. He knows what you need. But our hearts, if we're honest, we still resist this, don't we? How can we trust that? How can we trust that God sees us, that God knows our needs? I think sometimes people feel like they have to get their perspective of God completely figured out before they can really follow him. That they have to have some sort of attained level of faith before they can fully trust God. But Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sometimes I think we have to pursue God in the midst of not fully knowing how it'll go. Sometimes I think we have to take the risk and invest our lives into his kingdom in order for our hearts to follow. Sometimes we'll only know that God knows our needs once we've placed ourselves in a position to require his care and his help. Sometimes our bodies and our feet have to be put in the right posture before our hearts follow. Which is why Jesus says in verse 31, Instead, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Instead, instead of seeking after your own goals and ambitions and making that your life, instead of seeking after money and wealth, instead of trying to secure your retirement and your future, instead, seek the kingdom, and everything you need will be added to you. Jesus isn't just saying that God sees us and knows us. He says, God provides for us. And sometimes we don't even know what we need. We have a long list of what we want, and often we get that list of wants confused with things we need. But God knows what we really need. God knows what is for our ultimate good. God knows precisely what to give us, even when we don't know what we need. He provides. But I think we still worry. Which is why Jesus says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The things we seek in this world, we're never totally sure that we'll obtain them. We can hope for them, but we also fear not receiving them. They're never steady. But when we seek the kingdom, Jesus is telling us that God not only sees us, that God not only knows us, that God doesn't just provide for us, but that God delights in giving us his kingdom. It's his good pleasure that God actually takes joy in handing the kingdom over to you. Do you know God in this way? Do you know God as a father who who cares for you? Who really does care about the smallest concern? Who really does care about the things you're worried about? And I get it, you might have had a, a, a tough experience with your own father. And, and you might have even had a great experience with your father. But whatever your experience is with your earthly father, throw it away because it pales compared to the beauty and the faithfulness of the father in heaven who knows your needs, who delights in providing for you. Do you know him? Do you know that he, he wants to give you peace instead of worry? When Jesus tells us to stop worrying, he, he knows that we can't just stop. He he actually invites us to reorient our lives and our priorities because our worrying is the result of a bad investment. We've invested our treasure in the world. And instead of investing in ourselves and the world, he's inviting us to invest ourselves and our treasures into the kingdom of God. What does that look like? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? The verb to seek, it implies devoting 
serious effort to realize one's desire. In other words, it's not just half-heartedly asking, is Jesus really who he said he is? And asking the question, putting it out there, but then never searching for the answer. That's not seeking at all. Seeking God's kingdom means putting our all, not simply into asking the question, but finding the answer. And I want to ask you, are you even asking the question? Are you wrestling with figuring out, is Jesus really who he said he is? Is he really God in the flesh? Did he really die for the sins of the world? Did he really resurrect? Are you asking these questions? If you are, good, but are you seeking the answer? Are you throwing yourself into finding out if that answer really is true? Because if it is true, it changes absolutely everything. Nothing can be the same. It's the most important question you can possibly ask in your life. And I want you to know, if you're asking that question, you're trying to find that answer, we're here for you. And you take as much time as you need to ask that question, but don't take any more time than is necessary. But for all of us, when Jesus says, seek the kingdom, it's also in the present tense. It implies that we don't enter in, we don't answer that question and then stop pursuing. It's a relentless pursuit. So what can we do practically? What can we do practically to seek the kingdom? Well, Jesus has a very uh, minor suggestion. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. If you want to seek the kingdom of God, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, I have to admit that in all my years of being a Christian, all the sermons that I've heard, even the times I've heard this text preached, I have never come across a preacher who has said, go and do what Jesus says here. More often than not, we hear something like this in the scriptures and we think to ourselves, well, hypothetically, like hypothetically, if Jesus asked me for my stuff, I'd give it to him. And then we feel really good for thinking that. We feel good that we think we have the inward conviction to do that if Jesus asked us to do that. But here's the reality. Jesus isn't making a suggestion here. Sell is a command. To seek the kingdom means selling our possessions. Jesus doesn't want us to just resolve to do that in our hearts. He's actually asking us to do this. Now, in the first week of this series, we looked at the rich young ruler and Jesus said to him, sell all that you have. And we talked about how that was a specific command to a specific person in a specific time and place. When Jesus says here, sell your possessions, It's a command to his disciples, and it's a command that I believe goes across time and space. This is not something that you get to opt out of if you take Jesus' teachings seriously. I want us to take this command to heart and to action. I think what Jesus is really telling us, because we have to admit, at a certain point, if we just keep taking this command, we will have no possessions to give away. I recognize that. I think Jesus is calling us to a lifestyle of simplicity where we leverage what we have for the sake of the needy and we give even when it hurts, even when it is costly to our own lives. We sacrifice a quality of life for the quality of life of others. We settle for less so that others can have more. This is what I think he's talking about. Do you know about Dobri Dobrev? Have you ever heard of that name? Probably not. Dobri um, is 98 years old. He lives in Bulgaria. He fought in the Second World War, and now he's a beggar. And for the past several decades, Dobri, every single day, 
walks 25 kilometers from his village to the nearest city. And then he begs all day, and then he goes home. But recently it was discovered that for everything that he receives through begging, he gives it all away. He gives it to restoring monasteries, or he gives it to some of the local orphanages. And someone worked it out that he's given approximately $52,000 away. Doesn't that give us a picture of how beautiful following Jesus is? I'm just guessing here, but I think Dobry is a man who is not concerned about his clothing or his fashion or his belongings or his food. And that beard isn't a hipster statement. God simply provides for him. He's a beggar, but he's not in want. He doesn't worry. He seems to have a peace that surpasses understanding. He's able to give away anything he collects for the sake of others in need. I have to admit, I I see someone like that and I say, teach me about Jesus. Tell me what you know about Jesus because I'm missing it. What a beautiful man. Over the next week, I want all of us, every single person in this room, to ask God, what do I need to separate from this world stuff-wise? What can I sell? Then ask, who do you see that is in need, Lord? And once you know, go sell your stuff and give them the money. Or give them the stuff, but whatever it is. And I don't know what that might be for you. It's not about how much or how little. It could be your TV. It could be a guitar. It could be an alarm clock. It could be things in your storage locker or things in your pantry. It could be things in your closet or in your cupboards. It could be furniture, a computer, a phone, a car, a house. I don't know. But be open to whatever it is that God may have you give. And then give it up. Put it all on the table. Unless he asks you for the table, then put it on the floor. And I'm not, let me just clarify really quickly. Some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, I'll give away my TV and I'll give that money away because I've been wanting to upgrade my TV anyways. This is not what I'm talking about. Jesus is calling us to sacrifice for the sake of the poor. He's calling us to a simpler lifestyle where our priorities are aligned with the kingdom and he is telling us essentially that the kingdom of God is focused on the poor. This is what Jesus is calling us to do and he's calling us to do this because this is what Jesus did. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that through his poverty, we might become rich. He is showing us who God is. God is a God who becomes poor for others' sake. And if we want to seek after that kingdom, then we need to do the same. I want you to pray and I want you to ask God and talk to your friends, talk to the people in your small groups about what it might be that God wants you to give up and where he might want you to give it. And then when you figure it out, do it. Actually do it. And all of a sudden, we start worrying again. What if Jesus asks me to give up the thing that I don't want to give up? What will I do? How will I survive? And once again, we see the truth of Jesus' statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts get so caught up in our stuff, in our possessions, and in our money. So why does Jesus ask us to sell these things? Because selling these things is a very 
tangible and real way that we put our treasure in heaven. Look at the rest of verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. When we live for the kingdom, trusting in a God who sees us, who knows us, who cares for us, who provides for us, we start to hold our things loosely. And there's no better investment, honestly. You can't make a better investment than spending your life and your stuff on God's kingdom. Why? Because you get money bags that don't grow old. You get treasure that does not fail. No thieves. No erosion. In God's kingdom, we receive everlasting security and everlasting riches. Seeking after God's kingdom then means throwing ourselves at God's mercy and at God's direction. And following what he says helps us see that he is trustworthy. Giving away something that we think we need helps us see that we need God more. Being in need, relying on God's provision, it aligns us with the people that God is aligned with. The poor, the orphans, the widows. There's no way into the kingdom around this. Like we, we have to jump off the deep end of obedience. And I get, like some of the theology police right now, you're saying, we're saved by grace, man. Like this is sounding a lot like works. Don't get me wrong. The way into the kingdom, you can't earn it. You can sell all you have, but if you simply do that for yourself, God is not impressed with you. We are always invited into the kingdom by the Father. He is always saving us by grace through our trust and faith in Jesus. But the scriptures are very clear that faith will always express itself as love in action. That a continued seeking of the kingdom requires faithfulness. That's what Jesus is going on about here. Jesus, he knows God better than anyone else ever. And he's saying, if you really want to seek after the kingdom, if you really want to put your treasure in the kingdom, if you really want to see your heart transformed and no longer overcome by worrying, then sell your stuff and invest into the kingdom. He's inviting us to the more of the kingdom, the peace of the kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom, the abundance of the kingdom, the good pleasure of the father of the kingdom. The place where we're all made children of God, covered in grace and treasure. And he's inviting us into the reality that God delights in giving us the kingdom. That God isn't stingy with the kingdom. And even though it might seem like giving away our stuff and providing for the poor in a sacrificial way will only create more worry, we'll discover the truth of Paul's words. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The way we enter into the kingdom, the way that we seek after the kingdom is by trusting Christ's words and doing what he says. And when we do, we'll find a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that can't be robbed from us, a peace that even overcomes worry. That's why Jesus says in verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.